electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends, just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The long knives, they're out for J-Pal. Hardly a day goes by without someone taking a shot at him for being too slow to stamp out inflation. I think it's ridiculous, especially because just today he said he's willing to raise interest rates even faster if the situation gets out of control. That sent the average into a tailspin, the Dow sinking 202 points, S&P dipping 0.04%. It was worse at one point. The Nasdaq losing 0.40%. I think Powell is doing what is necessary. You can't ask for more than that. So because the market's now hostage to Powell's decision-making, why don't I give you a snapshot of what he's really facing here? Because it's not easy. You need to understand that this business cycle is like no other business cycle in years. Fortunately, he's not like any other Fed chief. He's better. First, there have been some monumental changes in how we live our lives, courtesy of COVID-19 that no one could have seen. Thousands upon thousands of companies went virtual. And while many have since gone back to normal, many others, including some of the largest ones, haven't. If you work in a business that can be conducted remotely, odds are you aren't coming back to the office that often. Three days a week might be the most for many, especially workers with young children. These people cannot be cajoled into coming back in person. They'll just resign because there's plenty of jobs out there. So what does the Fed have to do? What does that have to do with the Fed? Simple. There are enough people in this country who can afford to buy a second home, outfit it nicely, and work from there for half the week. No wonder we have only a little more than a month's inventory of homes right now. That's a gigantic shortage, people. Historically, even four months would be considered tight. We know from Lenar's excellent conference call last week that rents have gotten out of control, perhaps from the same process, so there isn't enough supply there either. Even if Jay Powell had taken rates up to 6%, I don't think it would have mattered here because remote work has become such a game changer for housing and for rich people. So why doesn't Lenar just build more homes? Well, first, it's hard to get enough land together for a scaled operation. But more important, the land for the second home is often not available because of environmental or zoning regulations. And they can't be negotiated fast enough. Surely pals should have seen that coming, right? I mean, it was so pronounced that people didn't want to come back to the office that any Fed Reserve factotum 
let alone the chief, should have seen this coming. Uh, um, I disagree. Powell, like many people, never thought the pandemic would last this long. Just when we think we're out of the woods, we had another more contagious strain. You could say Powell should have had the data. Uh, I say, what data? The CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, was just on CBS this weekend. She revealed that they haven't been able to get good data from many states because they can't compel governors to release it. Have you ever noticed how much of our COVID data comes from Israel? That's because they have a national health system that want to share with us. Our information simply isn't good enough. So is it going to be enough for Jay Powell? Either way, Jay Powell's not an epidemiologist. I think he's a very smart guy. But we can't expect him to do a better job of responding to the pandemic than our own health authorities. This whole thing has been a public health debacle slash nightmare from the very beginning. Mask, no mask. Testing, no testing. Lockdown, no lockdown. Handshake, no, it's aerosol spray. I mean, come on. So I see it, Powell's done an excellent job of coping with the pandemic. He saved us during the lockdown phase when the whole economy was collapsing. But at the end of the day, public health is outside of the Fed's purview. I mean, it's just not fair. You can't blame them. Of course, COVID keeps creating weird dynamics that the Fed needs to respond to. Right now, we're seeing tons of consumer spending, but a lot of that's pent-up demand. People want to see their families again. People want to get married. They want to take trips. They've been stuck isolating for too long. They wouldn't change even with higher interest rates. You think you'd go out less with higher interest rates? Come on. Third big change that was hard to see coming, the state and local tax it. Thanks to remote work, people are flooding into the Sun Belt, especially Arizona, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. Lenar says Houston's the hottest market. The last two are, the, are just incredible. I mean, California, Florida, I mean, they have far lower taxes. I mean, sorry, Florida and Texas, they have far lower taxes in California or anywhere in the Northeast, uh, which matters now. Because remember, Trump's tax reform package got rid of the state and local deduction for your federal income tax. Maybe this is something Powell should have seen coming. But this mass migration has shocked the home builders. So why wouldn't it shock him, too? I mean, it, it, it was just so hard to figure. Next, if you're going to a new country house or if you fear getting COVID from riding public transit, well, guess what? You've got to have an additional car. Now, new cars are filled with semiconductors. The automakers had come up with forecasts based on nothing special happening this year, let alone a pandemic that would upend how we live and make cars more essential. So why not just make more semiconductors? Why not have more semiconductors on hand? Well, because we're not like that. We do just-in-time inventory. And because the kinds of chips the automakers need are the lowest-end variety that typically carry the lowest margins. The semiconductor manufacturers rather use their capacity to make high-end chips for the data center. That's where the money is. So now we got a car shortage based on semiconductors. Chappelle, let me see. Chappelle, seen that coming? What is he like, some semi-analyst? I mean, are you kidding me? If the heads of the major semi-companies, the major foundries, and the major automakers didn't see this, this chip shortage coming, what do you think, like, Jay Powell just says, oh, I know this business, I know the way it works, it's going to be a shortage? No. Of course, it's not just the semis that are in short supply. The housing boom caught all suppliers empty-handed, from cabinet makers to appliance builders, garage openers, and lumberjacks. So everybody had to pay up, and inflation became ingrained in the housing cycle. Food started going up in price, too, as the patterns of where food went were upended by where people suddenly started shopping. If there was a lockdown, you got your food from essential service stores that then had to pay up to get everything they needed. Our food distribution system was not set up to move food to new places, which meant a shortage of drivers to get things to where they had to go. It was a total mismatch and mismatch. Finally, when we were worried about food and energy inflation, there's no worse place to have a war than Russia, the gas station of Europe, invading Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe. Obviously, the real tragedy of this war is the horrendous loss of life, and it's tough to think about. But 
If Ukraine can't harvest or export its wheat, we're looking at a global food shortage. And, of course, if the West won't buy Russian oil and gas, that gives you a global energy shortage. I could have had a half dozen other sources of inflation, but at the end of the day, Jay Powell's been dealt an insanely bad hand. So, of course, he's fallen behind. Hence why he said the Fed will move with alacrity from here on out. So feel free to blame him for not seeing what was coming. If he has to do 50 basis points, he will. But the bottom line, never forget that Powell's been asked to do the impossible here. Figure out how fast to raise interest rates when so many things should be slowing the economy and cooling inflation naturally. Yet nothing has worked out the way we expected or the textbook said it would. Just a crazy moment where he has to contend with a ton of forces that are beyond the Fed's control and do it in a way that no one is good enough to navigate. Least of all, the armchair chiefs who will, would wilt under his agenda. Herbert in Florida. Herbert. Back in the Kramer, Mr. Dooley. I got these questions. AGTC and Intel. Um, which one? I can't answer the Intel. What was the first one? AGTC. AGTC. Um, we're not following those little dollar stocks. Um, we, but I will tell you that I think that Intel is still not a stock that you want to own. Um, there's too many others that are doing far better. Intel has to cut a lot of price in, in order to be able to get uh, the customers it needs. And that's not so good. Eddie in Indiana. Eddie. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm fantastic, Jim. Thanks, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Hey, Jim, uh, you had recommended a, a stock in January, uh, Devon Energy and, and also uh, Walt Disney. Uh, Devon is up pretty good. I don't know. I wonder should I trim a little bit in Walt Disney. The time to cut and run and go long. Well, look, uh, Devin was a, a great one for the investing, investing club. Just terrific. Disney is a longer term play. I simply do not believe that Disney's franchise is at all hurt by what's going on. If anything's going on at all, I think Disney's a strong buy right here. Let's go to Wayne in California, please. Wayne. Uh, Mr. Kramer. Yes, Wayne. I thank you for taking my call. I have followed you for years. I read your books. Thank and you. I just want to thank you for your willingness to share your wisdom with uh, little guys like oh, me. Oh, thank you. Thank you and to all the kind mentioners, too, today, who are really terrific on Twitter. A lot of them mentioned my mom. So go ahead. Okay, so here's my situation. Um, I have a position in uh, GM, and I got into it the way you recommend. I didn't go in all at once. I've tiptoed in over time. So some of the shares are underwater. Some of them are slightly up right now. Um, I do see General Motors as a uh, long-term winner in the EV space, and I, I just uh, wanted your opinion about you know, whether, whether GM's current stock problems are temporary uh, and it's safe for me to continue tiptoeing into the shares or uh, if there's something uh, more fundamental un- underlying the, the downturn, and maybe I have I think to it's temporary, sir. Off. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Because, first of all, I think it's a self-driving unit that they're way ahead on. They're going to make real hay. I don't know if you saw that deal this week for Cruz, where they got out of the SoftBank, bought back, they bought SoftBank stock, now they have 80%. I like their EV strategy. I, I think it's just terrific. I think Mary Barr is doing a great job. It's one of the stocks when people say, oh, this market is so expensive. I say, how about the stock of General Motors? All right, now, Powell has been asked to do the complete impossible. I think we should just sheathe the long knives already. Let him work. He's contending with forces far beyond control, but he's going to contend well. Well, maybe anybody tonight, 
Today's action made last week's rally look extra enticing. So I'm digging into last week's moves and see what it could mean going forward. Then how did Kroger get its groove back? I'm taking a close look at the supermarket chain. And as I discussed, Jay Powell's a tough job in front of him. But how could Powell's moves impact a really good financial aid steeple? I'm talking to the company CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. The market pulling back again, this is the perfect time, perfect moment to look back on last week's incredible run. Now, keep in mind, the S&P 500 has only had four up weeks this whole year. And last week's 6.16% run was the best performance of the benchmark index since November of 2020, when we first started hearing that the COVID vaccines were ready. Quite a feat. But before we get too carried away, you need to understand that we're just not out of the woods yet. We consulted with multiple charters and technicians last week, and some of the smartest were adamant that this market has yet to put in a true bottom. Rather than a sea change, uh, something that would make it so that the market's a different coloration, you need to think of last week's miraculous run as giving you an opportunity to reposition your portfolio. These levels are a chance to sell the most beaten down stocks of the past few months and pivot into the kinds of names that can thrive in a rising interest rate environment, because boy, are we ever going to have one. 
However, that doesn't mean we can just dismiss this move as a temporary countertrend rally with no staying power. The fact is you almost never see the S&P 500 vaulting 6% in a single week. And this action can teach us a great deal about the current moment. And look, it's not just the S&P. All of the major averages were up uh, more than 5%. The beaten down Nasdaq surging 8% is really quite a feat. So first of all, how did it happen? Let's talk about the ingredients that make this kind of rally possible, because it is so rare. First, you need the market to be down so hard that it becomes a coiled spring. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly a month ago, the averages have gone into a tailspin. That's on top of the earlier Fed-mandated decline that started in November, when Fed Chief Jay Powell decided it was time to start cracking down on rampant inflation by hitting the brakes on the economy. That November was really, if you take a look, that was the peak of much. And the week before last was particularly ugly, the second worst week of 2022, at least so far. That pain continued last Monday, but then on Tuesday, all of the major averages turned around. Turned around Tuesday, and they kept running through the end of the week, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq leading the way. Why? Because we got a host of meaningful positives at a time when Wall Street was full of doom and gloom. When Russia invaded Ukraine, everybody figured the Ukrainian army would collapse like a wet paper bag. But by last week, we realized the opposite. It's more like Russia is a paper tiger, albeit a paper tiger with nukes. The stalling of the Russian advance and President Zelensky's magnificent performance created a renewed sense of optimism. At the same time, the price of oil pulled back from its highs substantially, which is always a positive because oil is a gigantic tax on the system. Of course, crude rebounded hard today. West Texas up 7%. And that's a major reason why the averages are getting hit again. Perhaps most important, last Wednesday, we had the big bad event that everyone on Wall Street was worrying about, the Fed meeting. But Fed Chief Jay Powell did exactly what we wanted. He explained how you get tough on inflation, preparing us for a series of additional rate hikes while staying measured and assuring us that if inflation moderates, he won't keep tightening for no reason. Remember, we need to kill inflation now. Ken, persistent price increases are bad for business and bad for you. So Powell's giving us what we need. And he was more, even more aggressive in his comments today. Throw in an incredibly oversold market and you had all the necessary ingredients for a fabulous rally that was, uh, called, some people call it a relief rally. Some people say it was the real deal. So what specifically led the way higher last week? Now, this is really interesting to see the makeup. When you look at the biggest winners, they were some of the most beaten down stocks in the market. Chinese stocks, Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund, recent IPOs and SPAC stocks, even the cloud names, even the pot stocks caught fire in the end. In short, some of the riskiest stocks of the moment had a terrific time last week. Most of these groups did not have a specific catalyst. They just fallen too far too fast. They were due for a bounce. But the Chinese stocks had an actual reason to run. Last year, the People's Republic of China practically declared war on free market capitalism. If you listened to their government, it sounded like they were finally rediscovering their Maoist roots. Turns out that uh, this kind of thing is terrible for your economy. Who could have guessed? So last week, the Chinese government made some reassuring moves to keep their, their stock market stable and mollify big business. Now, I have zero faith in the Chinese Communist Party. I am recommending avoiding anything that's listed out there. I want the strength used to be able to sell. But obviously, it's good news when the second largest country in the world says it's willing to be less anti-business. All right, how about the IPOs and the SPAC names and the cloud names? Some of their strength is simply because they've fallen farthest from their highs. So anytime the broader market makes a comeback, they'll bounce the hardest. At the same time, these former high flyers went out of style 
because the Wall Street's terrified of inflation. They trade entirely on their earnings prospects in the far future. And inflation erodes the value of those future dollars. That's something you have to take from me. I know it's Act 10, but you just got to trust me. So the Fed cracking down on inflation with last week's rate hike is good news for these unprofitable growth stores. Plus, the IPO dollars, uh, door has been just completely shut. Always a good thing because it means nobody needs to sell something to buy something new. You know the pain in the money-losing software stocks might be coming to an end when something like an Anaplan, a, ca- a cloud-based financial uh, plan- planning platform, catches a takeover bid from a private equity firm of some note, like it did this weekend. Private equity guys are opportunistic. They don't like to pay up. They also don't have to worry about it. justice investigations. The FTC doesn't mind. The possibility of more leverage buyouts can put a floor under many of these names. Now, let's go sector by sector. We ran a screen on the Russell 3000, the 3,000 largest stocks to trade in the United States. Then we cut anything smaller than $2 billion and sorted the remainder by industry group. Biggest winners? You had some huge gains in Internet and direct marketing and retail. Think DoorDash, which had a tremendous quarter. Etsy, great quarter. Revolve Group, tremendous quarter. eBay, better than expected. Amazon, terrific quarter. Overstock, okay. You had a fabulous run in the airlines, along with life science tools, information technology services, the department stores, the auto industry, especially electric vehicles like Rivian, Tesla, Fisker. At the same time, we saw an explosive move in the semiconductor group with Global Foundries, that's the companies that make the semis, up 31%, and NVIDIA up nearly 20%. Tomorrow, big keynote by Jensen Wong. He's the CEO of NVIDIA. Same goes for the credit card stocks, social media, and all sorts of software names. So what do we make of this move? The most important lesson of last week is that you never want to get too negative. Because once the market gets oversold, it doesn't take much good news to create an explosive rebound. And yet I know so many people who sold, sold the day before this rally happened. Second, when the whole market roars, you need to recognize that not everything has the same kind of staying power. Many downtrending groups make a comeback thanks in part to short covering. But those are the stocks you need to sell into strength. Think the Chinese names, the ARK innovation names, and the super expensive money-losing stocks that simply don't work in this environment. But some other groups look a lot more durable. Witness the strength of the consumer discretionary stocks, which should work just fine in a rising interest rate environment. As long as we don't have a full-blown recession, what do I like? I like Macy's here, six times earnings. And I think the travel place can continue to do well, Delta, but in particular, American Express. But the bottom line? While the last week gave you a tremendous opportunity to reposition, it has not changed my fundamental thesis. We have a narrower universe of potential winners here. So stick to profitable companies with real products or real services, especially ones that return capital to their shareholders, and we'll make this through this whole period together. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, how did Kroger get its groove back? Rush down the aisles with Kramer for a supermarket sweep next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Yeah. 
always searching the new high list for potential winners. Although lately, the list has gotten a little more limited. I mean, you've got some energy names, some material plays, some ag stocks, and some healthcare winners, pretty much what you'd expect at this point in the business cycle. But earlier this month, there was a surprise entry on the new high list that came out of nowhere. And now that it's pulled back from these levels, we've got to take a closer look. I'm talking about Kroger, the largest pure play supermarket chain in, in the, the entire country. You've got to understand, the grocery business is played by razor-thin margins, even when times are good. Right now, we've got the worst inflation we've seen in decades. You'd think that would be bad news for Kroger and its compadres. But this stock shot to $62 and change earlier this month, a new all-time high. Since then, it's pulled back about 11% to the mid-50s. Yet it's still up nearly 25% year-to-date and close to 60% over the last 12 months. That is impressive. But more than that, it's shocking. Before the pandemic, Kroger spent years in the penalty box, in part because of heightened competition in the supermarket space. They naturally got a boost when COVID first hit and we went into lockdown, forcing millions of people to cook at home. That was two years ago, though. And most uh, of, of the other pandemic winners, well, they've rolled over, as you know. But Kroger spent the last couple of years steadily churning higher before exploding to new highs after its most recent quarter. So how the heck can a supermarket chain be doing this well? Well, let's not forget Kroger's been doing well for a while now. They put up excellent numbers in 2020 and 2021. But even with that track record in mind, the most recent quarter was a true standout. On March 3rd, the supermarket kingpin delivered a blowout set of numbers. Same-store sales, excluding fuel, were up 4%. Wall Street was only looking for 2.1%. Digital sales more than doubled from the same period two years ago. Their gross margin, what they keep after the cost of goods sold, came in at 22.2%. Analysts only expecting 22%. Remember, we're in the middle of an inflationary spiral that's crushed earnings for all sorts of companies across a host of industries. Yet Kroger's margins are doing just fine. I thought they were going to get slammed. But that's how they posted a 17-cent earnings beat off a 74-cent basis. That's extraordinary. Even better. Kroger gave us an extremely bullish full-year forecast for 2022. Talk about how low to mid-single-digit earnings growth, which may not sound like much, but that's very impressive in the grocery business. The analysts were expecting a decline. Well, in response, the stock jumped over 20% over the next couple of days, something like what I expect could happen with Nike after that great quarter tonight. Although a lot of the strength was caused by panic short seller clo- sellers closing out their position in a Kroger short gone wrong. Once the shorts finished covering, the stock came back down, which is why it's now back in the mid-50s. The question here is, how did Kroger manage to put up such excellent numbers, a supermarket in the midst of tremendous inflation? I mean, tremendous. Well, first, let's talk about margins, because that's the key. Remember, Kroger is not just any grocer. They're the largest pure play grocery chain in the country. 2,726 stores across 35 states and Washington, D.C. In other words, they've got tremendous scale, and that gives them clout. The ability to lean on their suppliers and keep their goods of, uh, cost of goods sold as low as possible, lower than almost anybody. At the same time, they've got a fate, really good private label business. I know. I love the stuff. They knock off store brand stuff that they make themselves. It's got a really good brand. Kroger gets 20% of its sales from private label, and that's all much more profitable than selling somebody else's nationally branded merchandise. They've also gotten creative about drawing in traffic. For example, they now give their customers fuel rewards, which is pretty enticing in a time when high gasoline prices are sky, <laughs> prices are sky high. That's a good idea. Of course, when we're talking about controlling costs, not all of this is benign. Last month, the New York Times ran a piece headline, and I quote, Business booms at Kroger, but workers are left behind, end quote, about how many of their workers are homeless or relying on government assistance because they're so poorly paid. That's extremely suboptimal. 
But Wall Street doesn't care how the sausage gets made, does it? It's just like a dollar-filled sausage. We endorse capitalism with a human face, but it's an unhappy face for some. Wall Street's not noticing. Is it forgiven? It's not my job. Second reason that Kroger keeps winning? Well, this is not your father's supermarket chain. As CEO Rodney McMullen explained when he spoke to Sarah Eisen on Closing Bell a couple of weeks ago, Kroger has built a powerful omni-channel business. They've got digital. They've got fulfillment centers all over the place. Listen to this. We're so focused on the customer and so focused on what's going to be right for the customer in five years. And that's uh, including, uh, you know, our seamless system where people can go into a store shop, they can shop online, they can do pickup, they can do delivery. And all those things together is uh, connecting with the customer, and that traffic is driving our alternative profit business, which has higher margins than the traditional supermarket business. And it also gives us the capacity to make sure that customers, uh, we minimize the amount of inflation we have to pass through, too. In short, the digital business, then the whole build-out, they've given Kroger a higher margin channel to sell things directly to the the customer, allowing them to hold down their own costs. Their omni-channel is now competitive with almost anyone else in the industry, including Walmart, something that I don't think Wall Street really understood until we saw that last quarter. Third, Kroger's also got some huge partnerships. They now have over 1,100 Starbucks locations within the stores. They have a deal with Bed Bath & Beyond to expand their assortment, including Bye Bye Baby products. You know, I think that's a great division. They partnered with DoorDash for sushi delivery. So beyond building out their omnichannel apparatus, Kroger's also use these outside partnerships to fill the gaps in their business and help attract customers. It makes going to the supermarket a lot more enticing. They also localize the supermarket, something I like. It is an amazing story, but can it continue? especially as people now feel more comfortable about going out to eat. Let me put it this way. Right now, Kroger's stock sells for just under 15 times this year's earnings estimates. That's a touch expensive for a grocer, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper than the average stock in the S&P 500, which trades at just under 20 times earnings and isn't doing as well as Kroger. Plus, it's worth noting that Wall Street's consensus earnings estimates for 2022 at the low end of Kroger's guidance. And it's not like these guys have a habit of overpromising. I think Kroger still isn't getting the respect it deserves from the analyst community. That's a good thing for you because it means this company is perfectly poised to keep beating the earnings estimates like they've done for the last nine straight quarters. No wonder Warren Buffett's gigantic share were third largest after the giant index funds. The best things about Kroger, though, is that it passes the marathon man test. Thanks Sir Lawrence Olivier asking, is it safe? While interrogating you with some terrifying dental equipment, Kroger is as safe as it gets. At this point in the business cycle, with Fed beginning to tighten, we'd normally circle the wagons around recession-resistant stocks like the supermarkets. However, this time we've got the worst inflation in decades, which is bad news for the whole industry, except Kroger, which we know is coping just fine with inflation and even has expanding gross margins. Here's the bottom line. We know Kroger's safe because they're doing great right now. And if the Fed tightens too aggressively, causing an actual recession, this stock will only get more attractive because it's exactly what money managers like to own when they're worried about a real slowdown. Jim in North Carolina. Jim. Yeah, Jimmy Chill. Yo, yo. Yeah, this is Jimmy Iceman in North Carolina. was calling about the CMG Chipotle. I love it. Love the food. I bought it, then I uh, did dollar cost average, then I did dollar cost average again, using mad money and real money. Next thing you know, I'm in a washout, so now I'm uh, hurting a little bit. And this is real money, cash money. This is not no uh, monopoly money. 
I totally understand that, Jim, and I am sensitive to that. But I will tell you that I've liked this stock since 300. I like it at 1500 and I will like it at 2000. OK, that's my that is where I think it's going. I'd like it at 2000. So, yes, short term, little pain. Longer term, I'm predicting really great things. Dennis in Maryland. Dennis. How are you? Jim. Yeah. I've been a loyal fan for decades. Thank you. You have said to invest in companies that make profits can pass on inflation. Right. Last summer, you said you liked this company at $36. Now its earnings are growing and should exceed $4.20. As its sales grow directly with inflation and its distribution to the majority of the 1,000 to 2,000 Amazon fresh stores coming to America. Is UNFI, United Foods, an even better buy today at 42, given its likely 20% plus earnings growth rate? Dennis has got worse since. He realizes the earnings are going up and the multiples are shrinking. That's wrong. This is a company that could do very well on inflation. UNFI is a buy. Thank you very much for the kind words. And again, on Chipotle, I am a believer. All right. Kroger is doing great right now. It's much better than I thought. And if the Fed tightens too aggressively, it's only going to get more attractive. I'm trying to give you ideas for what's ahead. Now, money managers like to own stocks like Kroger when they're worried about a slowdown. Oh, wow. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Stiefel. The financials caught a very nice break last week. But with some new uncertainty in the market, what should you make of the sector? How about this one? Small, lucrative growth. I'm getting the read on the space with the CEO. Then what's our country's plan for energy? <laughs> well, I'll reveal what I think needs to get done. And order calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. Sometimes the best stories in a given industry, they're just hidden in plain sight. It's kind of like Poe's purloined letter. Take Stiefel Financial, the St. Louis, Missouri-based investment bank whose research I read every day. This has been one of the best performers of the last 25 years. Ever since CEO Ron Kuczewski took over in 1997, the stock has up kids roughly 4,000%, trouncing the performance of the big national investment banks. When you look under the hood here, the numbers continue to hold up. Stiefel's posted five straight years of record earnings. It's got a rapidly growing lending business, too, with 46% loan growth last year, meaning it's poised to benefit from the Fed's rate. I just got to hear about that. Oh, and the company just doubled its dividend, one of my favorite signs of strength. While the stock has been range-bound for the last 12 months, it could have resume its long march higher. Let's check in with Ron Krzyzewski. Now, Ron is the chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial, and I think that he's also a very exciting guest because he's got a better hand of what's going on with rate hikes than anybody. Mr. Krzyzewski, welcome to Mad Money. I'm glad to be here, Jim. Hope all's well. Oh, Ron, it's great. You know what? I just think your research is so stupendous. That's why I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, In your conference call, the last conference call, you were talking about three rate hikes and how good that would be. I mean, today we got the kind of a blueprint for as many rate hikes as the as the Fed chief wants. So to me, this is a good day for Stiefel in terms of the uh, net interest margin. There's no question. I mean, we've already projected with three rate increases, Jim, our, our net interest income would be up 50%. That's a quarter of a billion dollars. And that, you know, I think the most dovish uh, dot plot today is for six rate hikes. So uh, rising rates is good for steeple. Now, I have to tell you, I, I, sometimes I feel terrible that I don't know the situation myself. The growth that you have is far greater than the, I mean, I'm looking at, say, for instance, wealth management, you're number seven. You're far greater in growth than, than all the others on the list. How are you doing that? 
Well, we're gaining market share for one, and we're growing across all businesses. You know, uh, Jim, we're a very diversified firm. We have wealth management. We have a bank. We have institutional equity, fixed income. We've got the largest public finance department in the country in terms of number of transactions. And we're growing uh, in Canada, the U.K., Europe, Asia, and Israel, all, all over the place. So I, I just feel that we are taking advantage of what happened to the financial services industry after 2008. Uh, we're filling that void. You uh, spend a lot of time talking about recruiting. Now, when I speak to the big investment banks in New York, all they talk about is resignation. You are getting the right people. How are you doing that? Yeah, it's, an, it's a uh, word that's overused, but it is culture and it's entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, spirit. Uh, our bankers, uh, when they do well, we, we pay them well, and we give them a lot of tools to compete. So when we look at almost every market, we're looking to add people. And the good thing, Jim, is, you know, what's amazing to me is uh, I don't really need headhunters. People are calling me, and that's good. Now, why is that? I mean, I know it's a great brand myself, but is that because they're just people recognize that if you go to Steve you can have a pretty good living? I think if you uh, people realize no matter what business you're in, if you come to Stiefel, you will share in the firm's success. And uh, it's it's an incentive based system and people that are productive and entrepreneurial want to be recognized. And here they get recognized. So people are coming here. Do you think people realize, I mean, in general, fourth largest provider of U.S. equity resource, fourth largest U.S. investment bank by U.S. equity trading volume? I mean, these are spectacular figures. And yet when you're on my show, I feel like I have to tell everybody because I'm afraid they don't know you. Well, you know, the street's kind of funny that way. It, it has a long memory. So it remembers that when I joined Stiefel, our revenues were $100 million, Jim. Our market cap was $40 million. Today... Five billion in revenues, market cap, you know, has been uh, eight billion or so, and so that growth uh, is hard to uh, to understand for a lot of people. They don't see it, and uh, that's why I'm glad to be on your show because I want to share a story here. Well, you're right too. I mean, for instance, we happen to be big fans of a, a fellow by the name of Brian Jordan. Okay, now he is the CEO of First Horizon. Why did we put him on? We thought chronically undervalued, chronically under every quarter, chronically under, and then one day we wake up and get to take over. Why? Because it was chronically undervalued. I look at what you're doing in Stiefel and I say to myself, why aren't you a you know, $100 billion outfit? You are up there with the other guys. And you should talk, talk about your banking franchise, about your banking research, because it's by far the best there is. Well, I really appreciate that. We've built this firm on the institutional side around our research, and I believe that our research is second to none, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I hear you. Uh, the one thing is that I, I know uh, Brian Jordan. He's a great guy, built a great bank, uh, and he got a great price. Uh, we got a ways to run here at Steeple. We're going to continue to gain market share. I'll tell you that. Okay, so, Ron, I'm a little worried. 2021, great year for IPOs. Uh, this year, uh, it looks a little tougher. What the year-over-year comparisons? Do we have to worry? 
Well, oh, for the first quarter, look, anyone can look at uh, the deals and see that equity issuance, Jim, almost any way you want to look at it, equity issuance is down 75 to 80 percent in the first quarter. But uh, I'll tell you why you look by that. And that is that what's going on in the world today, you have renewed inflation. You have what happened in the pandemic. You have the digitization of the world. And what that means is that people that provide thought and provide ideas and help companies move capital around are going to be busy. And that firm like that is Stiefel. So what I look forward, our uh, advisory backlog has never been greater. And the slowdown in the first quarter to me is merely just a little bit of a breather. It's been volatile. And, uh, and you know that. Right. Well, look, I've got to tell you, I'm so glad you came on. I wanted to tell your story. This is the best way to do it is with you, Ron Kachewski. This bank is doing so much better than so many others in this group. The symbol is SF. Ron, thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Jim, my pleasure. Guys, this is a hidden gem, guys. It shouldn't be hidden. It's right in front of you. It's like the per one letter. Mad Money's back in for the Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time to start the Lightning Round. And then the Lightning Round is over. Are you ready? Keep that down. The Lightning Round is start with Terry in Florida. Terry. Hey, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah. And I just want you to know that Happy and Batilia still think you're the most dynamic, attractive person on television. I'm a veteran caller, and I'd just like to know what you think of PPG. Well, i got to get my wife to watch the show. Um, okay, I think PPG is down too much. I think it's okay. They're not. You know, look, I have to tell you, this is a company that's been really hurt by raw costs. That's going to end eventually. I think it can handle disappointment at this point. I would buy the stock. Let's go to Jack in California. Jack. Hey, Jim, uh, big fan. Uh, what is your thoughts on ticker symbol APPF? Really very interesting. You've got a software portfolio that is meant for uh, for housing. And I think it's much needed. And I, it reminds me very much of Anaplan, which got a bit today from Toma Bravo. Let's go to Ralph in New Jersey. Ralph. Hi, Jim. Uh, in terms of diversification, does it make sense for an older investor to have BRA? as more than a third of a portfolio, almost as a proxy for a growth fund. Wait, what's the stock? VRK, uh, Berkeley. Oh, but yeah. I, look, I think that's a lot for any one particular company, but I do love the company so much. Let's cut it to 20% so that we can sleep better at night. Let's go to Scott in Wisconsin. Scott. Hello, Jim. Hey, what, Scott. What are your thoughts on SBLK and is the dividend... Too high. I think the dividend is too high, but for what's going on right now in Ukraine, I think it's actually going to be good for the next year. I I don't like to recommend those stocks. They've been such heartbreakers, but that one I think is going to work right now. Michael in Georgia. Michael. Yes, sir. Let's go. Energy. Ticker EGY. Another one. This is... Yes, it will work. It will work because oil is so high, even though I don't like their business model. Let's go to Ken in New Jersey. Ken. Booyah, Jim. Ken from Union, New Jersey. All right, near me. What's up? Yes, sir. I'm also an investment club member. Thank you very much. Thank you. And don't miss the morning meeting, 20 after 10. 
Jeff Marks and I have a great day. I want everyone to join the club. It's crazy not to. Let's go to work. Thank you. I'd like to know your thoughts on Plains All-American Pipeline, PAA. Okay, typically I would not be a fan because they did have issues, but I've got to tell you, the pipeline companies, they're in strong demand. I think that I have to tell you, as much as I like Plains, I like EPD more, but I'll, I will back Plains. I will back it. Back it. Absolutely. Let's go to Marla in Tennessee. Marla. Hey, greetings from Lucky Top, Jim. How are you? Oh, I'm kind of busted with the balls going out of the basketball bracket, but that's okay. we got the ladies coming on strong. All right. That's good. I've got Zags. Go ahead. Listen, uh, looking for Truist Financial. I like Truist. It's funny. I was in Florida recently. There's a Truist in almost every quarter. They're in the right place where wealth is. They're very smart run back. I think it's a good place to be. I like Truist. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Plenty of players have parts to perform to put this energy crisis out to pasture. Why oil starts but needs not end with Putin. Kramer puts it all in perspective. Next. Kramer, you are super. You are awesome. I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. With crude oil soaring to $111 a barrel today, it's worth asking, what in the world does our country want to do with our vast energy stockpile? Do you know, we're the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. We could dominate the fossil fuel industry. We could permanently break OPEC if we wanted to. But unfortunately, this administration seems uniquely out of touch with what's happening in oil and gas in this country. And it shows in all sorts of strange ways. I understand why the Democrats are ambivalent about fossil fuels. They don't want to wreck the environment. But right now, we've got a global energy crisis, and we're not doing anything to take advantage of it. Let's start with pipeline siting. We have a ridiculous amount of natural gas in this country, and with, and with enough infrastructure, we could become the world's largest exporter. That's huge, because Western Europe is almost entirely hostage to Russian natural gas. Talk about a worldwide imperative. But what has the Biden administration done? Given that Congress is gridlocked, I wouldn't be surprised if we're in a moment where the power will devolve to the federal agencies that the president can actually control. When it comes to natural gas export terminals, that's under the control of the Federal Energy Work Re- Regulatory Commission, also known as FERC. Unfortunately, F- FERC's definitely against building more pipes, and we need those pipes to bring that gas export to terminals in the southeast. These terminals are enormous and expensive. Nobody wants to build a new one if there are going to be problems getting natural gas there. There will be problems, though, because FERC has said that it wants to scrutinize new pipelines for environmental justice. I'm all for environmental justice. But I don't want to lose sight of the big picture, which is that our allies in Europe desperately need a source of natural gas from somewhere other than Russia. I call it life or death justice. Sure, nobody wants a pipeline back built in their backyard. But then again, nobody wants Europe dependent on Russian gas. So the administration should be doing everything it can to promote these pipelines. Same thing with Russian oil coming to this country. People are incredulous at the fact that we're still importing crude from Russia. How is that possible? Well, there's a simple reason. It costs too much to get our own refined product from the southeast to the northeast, thanks to something called the Jones Act of 1920, which makes it borderline impossible to move oil or any other cargo interstate unless it's built 
and unless it's shipped into an American-built ship, we make almost no ships here, that flies an American flag, almost no flag it ship does fly an American flag, and his crew is three-quarters American. There are so few ships that fit that model. Almost all are foreign flagged and built elsewhere, which means it's cheaper to just take Russian oil from one port to another. Cheaper than moving it from Texas. It's not 1920 anymore, Mr. President. And the fact that we haven't suspended this provision of the Jones Act is absolutely insane. Finally, there, there, there needs to be a line of communication between the oil companies and the White House. And it can't be prosecutorial because I don't think the president understands that our producers can massively ramp up their volume, making us less dependent on other countries and allowing much of our excess oil and natural gas to go to Europe. Right now, the oil companies don't want to open the spigot because they're happy with sky high prices and they don't know if those prices will last. Sadly, there's absolutely no urgency here whatsoever with this president. Biden seems fearful of being bushwhacked by big business. And, hey, I get it. Historically, the oil companies have not been good actors. But right now, we're in an energy crisis worldwide. So we need to expedite the pipeline approval process, scrap the outdated provisions of the Jones Act, and get a darn dialogue going between the White House and the oil industry to boost production. Too many of our allies are addicted to Russian oil and natural gas. The best thing we can do to help Ukraine is to replace those Russian fossil fuels with homegrown American ones. We can do this. But our president must get on board. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.